Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts. And today, it is a pleasure to have one of my former students as my guest, Ainsley Cousin. Apparently, Ainsley didn't get enough of me in undergrad. She wanted to come on the podcast. So, um, of course, being very student-friendly, I I acquiesced to her request, but we had talked about her coming on the podcast before, and I have to say, she is one of the ones who was one of my bigger pains in the butt to get this podcast off the ground. So Ainsley is uh, certainly one of the primary inspirations uh, behind the launching of the Teaching Journeys podcast, and I'm glad she did because it's been fun having you know a lot of interesting conversations with a lot of interesting people. But anyway, let me give you some a brief bio on Ainsley. Ainsley Cousin, Cousin graduated from Utica University in May of 2023 with a bachelor's in psychology and is currently a student at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, studying for her master's in clinical mental health counseling. Ainsley has a lot of interest with adolescents and young adults in their relationships and other life-changing events and would love to use her education to further help those struggling and I have no doubt that she will make an impact postgraduate studies, whatever you choose to do in your career, Ainsley. So, hey, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. We're going to have class all over again. I'm so excited, Dave. Thank you. You're welcome. So, um, how's things in Nashville? It's got to be warmer than it is here. Yeah, it's much warmer. There's no snow. I heard that there was snow um, in New York. It's about 60 today, so not complaining. Much, much nicer. Yeah, send some of that warm weather here and sunshine and no snow. Just, uh, you know, you work your magic on that to get us some non-winter weather for a while. So, so anyway, um, this podcast is going to go where it's going to go. And we've talked about a few talking points uh, related to your journey from undergraduate school to, to graduate school and, and um, you know, the, the progression with that, the ups and downs with that, the challenges with that. But first and foremost, the standard question that I ask and that I want to ask you right now is tell us about the experience or experiences that have shaped your life path or choices to this point. Tell us a little bit about what got you to the present moment. Yeah, well, I had a really interesting psych class in high school. It was like the first class that wasn't math or science or social studies where I could kind of offer my own opinion. And I really enjoyed that. So I knew with the college search, I was definitely going into psych. I'm one of those oddballs that never changed their major or, you know, anything like that. I stuck with that. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit my freshman year at Utica um, University. So that was an adjustment. So being sent home, dealing with all of the unknown and the uncertainty. Um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer also on top of COVID and being sent home. 
So it was just a tough year. And I knew there was a need for mental health counseling, um, anything in the mental health field in general. Um, and I wanted to really focus on that. And I knew that I wanted to further my education so that I could, you know, get more of an understanding and education of how to use it. So, so yeah, here I am. And this was the best fit. And I don't like the snow. So I knew that I needed to, to go south. Um, and yeah, this is a really good fit. And I love Belmont University and all of the people that I've met, both professors and students. So I feel really at home here. Yeah, you sound it. There, there's a sense of calm and self-assuredness and focus. Um, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head, too. COVID really disrupted a lot of the lives of students. Um, from, a, from a perspective of being a college student, what have you, did you hear from your peers? And, and what did you yourself experience as far as the, the impact of COVID on your college experience? Yeah, I mean, my friends and I always talked about how we finally had like our little bit of freedom from our parents and just our hometown. And that was just suddenly like taken from us. I mean, I mean, the college sent out emails within weeks and we were all sent home. Um, my friends and I, Joe, we never thought we would miss communal bathrooms, um, but we did. <laughs> so, of course, that was an adjustment. Um, and we we just talked a lot. I mean, I miss my friend um, who lives near the Albany area and we didn't get to see each other. So it was hard. It was, I mean, the social aspect was just taken and I don't think that um, school was really the same. I think it was kind of just to get by and, and figure it out as we go. So I feel like a lot of the things that we worked for just didn't happen in the same way. Yeah. I know for me as a professor, we, um, you know, the shock of having to just suddenly closed down classes in 2020, um, it, it really threw that whole, threw our whole community into a, to, to really a, a tizzy. Um, and we had to scramble in terms of trying to get the semester done using, you know, online teaching methods that, you know, a lot of us weren't really familiar with. Um, I was fortunate myself is that I had a, a gentleman by who's no longer working at Utica University by the name of, of Robert Miller who gradually got me to put all of my material online, my, my PowerPoints, uh, drop boxes for my papers, my grade book. So the, fortunately, when we made the transition to go online, everything was there. I just had to pick a, you know, I just had to pick a, a platform to do online teaching and Zoom was, was a no brainer. Um, it was the one that I think best mimicked the classroom situation. But one of the things I found out, I've, and I've been talking to my students after, I mean, there's only so much Zoom you can do on, online. And it's really tough to really replicate the spontaneous interaction in a, in a live classroom than it is with Zoom. And I know we were also pressed, well, not pressed so much as, as we were, were asked to have students keep their cameras on, but that's not always realistic because if you're, you're coming from home, home is, there's a lot of stuff going on at home. And there's not a lot of times students want to bring home into the classroom. They, they want to be able to maintain their privacy. So for myself, I had to, to find some more flexibility in terms of balancing that out. But it was a challenge. Um, I know as you guys miss the online, the, miss the, on, the in-person contact, I miss the in-person contact with my students. It just wasn't the same. We got it done, but yeah. it, just wasn't, it just wasn't the same for me. It, 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 
when I, when I got back into the classroom, even from a hybrid situation with masks, I was just happy to have some in-person contact. So um, if it was difficult for me, I can imagine that it was a, a heck of a transition for students. And let me ask you something. Freshman year, do you, how important is that to establish a community of support right from the get-go? And, and what did COVID do to affect that, do you think, for incoming freshmen? Yeah, I mean, I think back to like our freshman orientation, which I, I don't remember the like how many days exactly, but I think it was like three maybe. I mean, that's where I made my friends. And I asked random people for their phone number to put into my phone and we mingled and I met with some like professors and, um, you know, our RAs and things like that. So it was so social, and even eating in the calf. I mean, we all sat together and we ate and we talked and, you know, we were assigned a group. And that's really just how we made friends and bonded. Um, we're all going through the same experiences. So it's interesting to hear about all of that. Um, but I don't know if it was the same for the incoming that next year. I mean, things were different. We had masks and even thinking back to like my college tours before I even decided where I wanted to go. I think that was kind of all put on hold for a long time. So I definitely think that impacted those incoming students. I mean. I know it would have impacted me. And particularly the transition from high school to college is, is really is really challenging. And maybe you could speak to that. What surprised you or what was different about your about going to college, being a freshman in college as opposed to doing four years of high school? Did you feel like high school prepared you adequately for what you were going to get in college? I think so. I had a lot of homework and I had like a big workload in high school. I also played sports, so I was busy. Um, so time management, I definitely learned in high school, especially, you know, I wanted to bring that into college. But with college, I never had a schedule where I was in school from like eight to three all day like I was in high school. I mean, I had more freedom to pick what classes I wanted to take, when I wanted to take them. Um so I was prepared for the workload of a full eight to three day, but I really could put more time and, and energy into those classes I really wanted to take. And maybe it was one class a day on Monday and then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I had six classes. So it kind of, I could separate it to where I knew I would feel comfortable and not overwhelm myself. Yeah. And I think, I think that's important because high school, you got to, pretty standard schedule and it's pretty intense college you have the opportunity to 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 kind of space that out a little bit but the other thing is also i think in terms of all of a sudden at 18 years old now you find yourself that you're responsible for yourself and one of the things i i heard from students is desire to be independent and i get that you know you don't want to be you know, depending on your parents for the rest of your life, but they realize that it is not as easy as it sounds to be independent because there's a lot of stuff that goes with that. For you, what do you, what would you see as being the challenges of, of, of being, of, of wanting your independence? What were some of the things that you had to negotiate and you had to, to deal with and you had to figure out? I really wanted to be able to just do and go wherever I wanted to without like telling someone where I was going. 
Um, you know, if we wanted to go see a movie, I didn't necessarily have to ask for permission. We all just kind of, you know, got with our friends and we went to the movie theater. And I really enjoyed that social aspect of it. But then I would be like, wait, I need to stay in. Like, I do have homework to do. or I do have studying to do. So it was really like, okay, now I under- like now I wish I had someone to say, maybe not tonight. Maybe you should stay in and do some mm-hmm. homework tonight. Because it was very hard at first to say no while you're making friends and wanting to be social. But also you have to realize you're there for school. So that was a big adjustment that I had personally. I know for me, and I don't know if I told told you the story in class, but my freshman year of high of college, I went to Utica, was then Utica College, and I majored in basically game room one hundred and one. You know, I um, I played ping pong. I had difficulty. I mean, negotiating my own independence. I got involved in a relationship that, as I look back, was ill advised, and it basically just messed my head up. And I got a one point nine average my first semester of of college. And I would tell my students, kiddingly, there was the dean's list. I made the janitor's list with a one nine. And, um, you know, then I I had to really reflect and figure out what was important to me. So one, I I ditched the, I got rid of the relationship. I ditched the relationship and I decided to put my, my efforts into school. And I, I, for me, that finding that kind of balance of first semester was really difficult because I had a lot that I was dealing with at once, and I had a lot of categories I tried to juggle at once. But once I found my focus, I ended up graduating with a 3.4 average overall and a 4.0 in my, my psych major. I tell my students that, that don't, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Yeah. Tell me about your decision-making process. How many colleges were you considering for undergraduate school? Take us through that decision-making process that ultimately helped you decide on Utica University as the place you were going to go. Yeah, so I think for undergrad, I applied to maybe like 10 or 12 schools. I, you know, I went to visit most of those um, and then... I went back and I did a second visit to the ones that I really love. There were a couple campuses that I went to and I knew off the bat it was just not for me. Um, and then I had three, um, two in Rochester and then Utica. And ultimately it came to, I want to be away from home, but I still want to have a sense of home. And I had a lot of family in Utica um, in the surrounding areas. So I knew that that was a good fit and I was still about, you know, almost three hours away from home. So I had my space from, you know, my home base, but I was also thinking, you know, something goes wrong or I need a little family time. My family's only 20 minutes away. So ultimately that, you know, helped with my decision. I wanted that independent, um, but also I left the campus and it's probably because I didn't go in the middle of winter for my tour. But the campus was really nice and welcoming. I think we saw a football game at one point, and I just saw, you know, the sense of community. And everyone went to the football game, and that was just really cool. Um, I met some really great people who I don't, I think one of them ended up going to the school, but they did, like, an accepted students' day. Um, and I just sat with a bunch of students, and I thought, wow, we all kind of have, like, the same interests. We're all coming from different areas. And I think I could learn a lot from these people. So ultimately I left that 
that visit and I signed my application and it was official. So I think it was a lot of things added together for sure. What did you like? Utica, Utica University is a very small school. What did you like about the small school experience? Would, what would you, for a student who is considering a small versus a large school to go to, what would you, what would your advice be in terms of how they determine between those, between those two, small versus large school? Yeah, I think personally, I was ready for a one-on-one -on -one type of connection with my professors. Um, and I had other friends that were in larger schools and they didn't even really know anyone in class when the professor never even knew their name. I mean, they submitted work and it was, you know, done based on completion and that was it. Like when it came time for letters of recommendation or needing help, it was, there was just never any connection. And I knew I didn't want that. I knew I wanted a program. I think the most kids I've ever had in a class at Utica was maybe 25. And that's how many I had in, in high school. So I had other classes where there was three or four of us in a class mm -hmm. and I loved that as well. So I think I just knew I wanted, you know, more personal relationship within the classroom and that's what Utica gave me. Yeah. That's one of the things I like about teaching at Utica University is the small classroom sizes. Um, you know, and you know, I make it a point to know my, to know my students by first name. It's easier to develop a, a professor-student relationship in a smaller school because you're dealing with obviously smaller classroom size numbers. But the other piece is for a professor to be willing to cultivate those relationships. And, and that's the other part of that. Um, I think if a professor isn't willing to cultivate those relationships, it doesn't matter if you're going to a small school or a large school, the experience, I think, for particularly for the student, and I think to an extent for the professor, is not going to be as fulfilling. Um, and I think in a small school, you have that better opportunity to cultivate those kind of professor student relationships, um, you know, uh, more so than you do obviously in a large, a larger school. So yeah, definitely. Let's talk about the mental health piece a yeah. little bit. Um, I know one of your passions is obviously working in the mental health field, helping a lot of young adults and adolescents deal with mental health issues. First of all, why is, are you so passionate about that? And secondly, what do you see as being the primary mental health concerns that you're seeing in our younger population? And what do you think are the root causes of that, both, you know, externally and internally? Yeah, I definitely have done a lot of work with children. Um, you know, I've babysat for years, but also I worked um, at a, an elementary school and I volunteered a lot in high school with um, just a bunch of children, family groups and the different dynamics. Um, some with autism, some with the other behavioral issues. Um, so I definitely knew that was the direction I wanted to go in. I just saw there was a need, um, but then... What I really noticed was during COVID, actually, and there was just such a divide. No one knew how to talk. No one was getting any, you know, face-to-face -face interactions. There was a lot of friend issues um, that I noticed within children, and I just felt really bad. Um, and then I think it was 2022, I was working at elementary school, and I just felt like the kids were very angry, and I didn't think anyone was listening to them. And I don't know if they were angry 
because someone or something upset them or if they just weren't being heard. And I think that them, you know, they don't understand their emotions. They have no idea. So I think that the problem I'm seeing is misdiagnosing these children for ADHD or anxiety or depression or or something like that when I think developmentally they just don't understand how they're feeling. And we want an immediate answer in this world for everything. And sometimes there isn't an immediate answer when it comes to mental health. Well, particularly with children, because as you mentioned, and, and you know, you're right on, on point with this, we have to rule out any developmental challenges that may be contributing to the behavior. Because a behavior that may be abnormal in one stage of development may be normal in another stage of development, but you always have to rule out I, I rule out developmental challenges before you, you diagnose a child with, with mental health. For me, for mental health issues, excuse me, for me, and I know there's been psychiatrists that, that have diagnosed two-year-olds with bipolar disorder. And I would ask that psychiatrist, have you ever heard of the terrible twos? What two-year-old would you find that doesn't have mood swings? Okay. And even for younger adolescents who are negotiating, you know, puberty and, the, you know, the, uh, the transition into to adulthood, any type of, you know, hormonal changes or bodily changes are going are, are gonna to cause, you know, some concern, some anxiety. So you have to rule that out. The other piece, and I was talking to uh, another therapist who does a lot of work with empaths. Empaths are very intuitive. They're very energy sensitive. And they are sometimes will process information at, at light speed to the point where their body isn't equipped to process the information at the rate that they're processing it. And they end up becoming anxious. They end up becoming scattered. But traditional Western-based medicine and psychiatry will say, well, you're ADHD. You have a generalized anxiety disorder. And it may be none of that. It may be that they just need to learn how to protect their energy, balance their energy, and keep negative energy out. And those are the, these are, there are so many different factors that when you're dealing with adolescent mental health that you have to consider. Um, and, and I think a lot of times the first part of differential diagnosis is that, are there any medical uh, explanations for the behavior that we're seeing? But the other part of it, what's going on socially and what's going on developmentally that may be contributing to the behavior that we're seeing. And, and a lot of times we're, it's just, well, let's do a, do, do a quick diagnosis, put that person on a, put that adolescent on a pill and see what happens. Well, um, you know, if an adolescent or anybody does not have this, the coping skills to deal with their issues, medication is only, it's going to manage symptoms, but it's certainly not going to, to be a cure-all. And if it's the wrong medication, if they're misdiagnosed, that medication is going to be of, of no use to them anyway. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a student who was in kindergarten. So, you know, brand new to school. Um, obviously, COVID was a couple of years before. So she didn't attend daycare or preschool um, in person. There was some other things happening. But um, then she also had a brand new baby sister. And the parents were like, I don't know why she's misbehaving and why she's acting this way. I think it's ADHD. And I think I would like to, you know, go get her test and medicate. And I thought to myself, what a change, you know, being home with mom all day. Now we're in school all day long. There's no nap. There's no, you know, calling mom. 
and you have a new sibling. I mean, there was just so many things happening at once. I just was taken back that the immediate reaction was to medicate and not, you know, you know, I hate that they think counseling is just talk therapy. You know, I mean, there's so much that comes with it, but why don't we just talk to her and see what's happened and, and try to work through that? Well, you remember from the death, dying, and bereavement class that you took with me, if a child is demonstrating what appears to be symptoms of ADHD, but there's no prior diagnosis, there's no prior history of that behavior, there's one or two things that may be going on. It may be something medical. It could be even diet where they're eating too, many, too much processed sugar uh, that's causing them to be hyperactive and distractible. The second thing is what's going on at home. And so, you, I mean, I tell my students, if you, you see behavior that's been exhibited that where there's no prior history, you sit down with the child and their parents, find out what's going on. Is it something medical or is it something that's, is there some disruption in the home? It could be there could have been a death of a pet, could have been a death of a family member. Parents might be having marital problems and that those type of issues will, the, the child will, will exhibit, ex, will manifest that dysfunction in terms of behavior and behavior that very much looks like ADHD. So yeah. like you said, so sit down and have a conversation. Right. Yeah. What do you see with young adults now as being kind of some of the root root fact factors or causes that contribute to a lot of the mental health challenges that they're, um, that they're experiencing? What do you, what do you see? At least from, from your studies, from your observations, from, talking with other other young adults? I think social media. I mean, I just started having social media around my teenage years. I mean, that was just becoming a thing. So I feel like what I thought was bad at the time is now 10 times worse. I mean, we hear horror stories of bullying and, you know, inappropriate behavior and things like that. I mean, it's just not right that... These kids are, you know, seeing all of this and they're so young and it's easy to say something through the phone, but they don't, they don't have the mindset either to understand that too. So it just, it becomes like a black hole and they just keep going down and down and down and it's an addiction and it's a problem. Well, the other thing is I think a lot of times everybody, young adults, millennials, older, older adults get their news on social media. And there's so much disinformation that goes into social media. And I would think just a general state of affairs in the world itself is going to be anxiety provoking and mood altering for a lot of young adults. And, and because of all the other categories that they're dealing with, if you take a look at what you dealt with during COVID, it was not only the disconnect from your social circle, and the very impersonal, you know, factors that were involved in, in teaching just because of COVID, and plus your mother developed cancer on top of that. Um, you take a look at those factors, plus what's with social media, plus what's going on worldwide anyway, and that, and plus the the pressures that are placed on college students now with with financial aid and paying back student loans. It's, it's got to be at times very overwhelming. Yeah. It's got, it's got to. You know. Right. And during COVID, I mean, we had to be on our phones. 
that's how we were getting our emails. And that's how mm-hmm. we were responding to our friends we were doing group projects with. I mean, that's how we were getting our information about what was happening with COVID or where to get a vaccine or where, you know, where's a hot spot of, t- of positive cases right now where we should avoid. Everything was on the phone. I mean, we all sat home and watched shows and TV all day long. I mean, it, it really, it became a norm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it took us probably another a good, another good two years to recover from COVID once we got back into, into, uh, you know, a regular routine again, you know, to, we had to get readjusted again to social contact, um, to face-to-face contact. The other thing I wanted to ask you too, and I, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm going all over the place. It's like one of my classes, you know, I get these plant tangents I and I, I, I just it. go all over the place. Um, you know, so I mean, who knows where 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 my mind's going to go at this point? But um, do you see that there's a stigma among young adults for wanting to ask for help? Do you think they see it as being a bad thing? Do they see it as being a um, a sign of weakness? What what do you what is your take on that? I do. I think it. I think there's a huge stigma around mental health in general and then we you know we pinpoint it to who's asking for help and and why are you not asking for help but i think that can be very a touchy subject for people people don't want to admit they need help people who need help don't want to take the time to go get help or you know there's other things happening they can't get off work to go get help so you know if you went up to your boss and asked for time off to go get help is that going to be a problem so there's obviously a stigma and also i don't think um, college kids and even in high school are aware that those services are there for them to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it takes one email or one phone call to let it get more information about that. I think that also would take away some of that anxiety about it because it's right on campus or it's right down the hall. So right. maybe if we could just, you know, promote that a little bit more, that would be helpful. And I think that's one of the things. I think you did a, a survey, and I remember circulating it to my classes. And one of the things you discovered is that students were not aware of, of many students were not aware of the fact that there are, were counseling services available on campus. The other thing, and I don't know if you found this, you know, in your discussion with your peers at Belmont, in terms of the accessibility of mental health services, typically it's, there's always, it's always been a resource issue, Ainsley, where um, there's been more individuals in need treatment than resources to provide it. And one of the things that I, I, I've heard periodically that goes on is sometimes there's a two-week waiting list to get in to see somebody, you know, for, for campus counseling services, just because the, the demand is so high um, and the resources or, or, or staff shortages or the amount of staff to provide those services are um, are grossly um lower than than you know just just than just those to serve those students who need it so yeah when i was doing this survey for dr Sedio's class i we learned a lot about the men like i learned a lot about the mental health center that we had on campus and also that you know they do reach out to the local community and refer you out if they have to and that's not you don't you don't get charged for that. It's covered by the school no. still. And that was such a huge 
you know, thing that I, I didn't know before I started, you know, doing my research. And I think that's, that's huge for students who especially are away from home for the first time. Hey, to have and, I, and I think that's a great service to have as well, too, knowing that at least, you know, at our, at our counseling center, we have those resources to refer out. And I think that that's a great thing because they may not, just because of the, the numbers or staff shortages, they may not be equipped to deal with the number of students who need treatment so they can re refer that out and, and match them with the therapist who get, can meet their needs. And I think that's, that's great that we have that. And um, I don't know how many other college campuses have that service, but I'm glad that, that we have that uh, at Utica. So, um, how has the graduate school experience been different from undergraduate school for you? What did you see about undergraduate school that helped prepare you for that transition to graduate school? It's so funny. I was just talking about this the other day with my friends. Um, you know, we jumped into class, you know, in grad school here at Belmont, and we started talking about people like, you know, the seven stages of grief. And then we started talking about, you know, Freud and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I was like, oh my, wait, I know, like, I know what we're talking about. I have, I can write you a paper yeah. on, you know, the hierarchy of needs. So I was super shocked in a way at first. I was like, wait, all this stuff that I just learned, I'm like applying that. Like now it makes sense. Like I am so appreciative having all of that, you know, information and now applying it to grad school. So I do look back and appreciate those things. It wasn't like starting over. There's, you know, if I was to be an English major in undergrad and then went to this program, I think I'd have a hard time um, understanding just those basic psychological things. Um, but workload-wise, I feel about the same. Um, it's sort of an... Um, a sped up process. I do four eight-week classes, so two and then another two for one semester. Um, so it's not like a full four classes at a time or five classes at a time, which I don't mind. I think it's a little bit better. Yeah, it's good to know that the undergraduate, the core curriculum, the curriculum that you got in your major was stuff that, that you've already heard and you were, now you can just not focus on so much knowing the concepts, but basically now applying those concepts. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, the, you know, the, the psychology department did very well was obviously to, you know, to, to, to give you that very background. I mean, their, the curriculum, you know, is solid as far as preparing you for entry into, into graduate school and also for you know, the psych child life curriculum is, is going to prepare individuals not only to be certified child life specialists, but also go into the field of social work or something else because it's a very, it's a really, really good diverse curriculum. And I'm proud of the curriculums that are, that, that we provide where we're at. And, um, and I'm glad you had a chance to evaluate yourself. And if you didn't, I wouldn't have met you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. have met you. And just think of what your life would have been like if you didn't meet me. Oh my gosh. Where would we be? Well, you'd probably be in Belmont and I'd still be teaching at Utica University. No, I don't think so, Dave. You don't think so? I don't think so. You you posit positively impacted my grad school journey. So I think like I was so motivated, you know, you had so many kind things to say and 
helpful things to say. You know, I, I loved your classes. So it made me even more interested in the direction I wanted to go in. So I think that that definitely pushed me into this direction. I think those final classes that we took, I mean, death, dying, bereavement, I loved. Everyone was like, oh, our class, it's going to be going to be deep. It's going to be dark. And I'm like, oh, I probably will. Be. The best class ever. I mean, I learned so much. So I think that it just kind of like got me excited about school again, post COVID, you know, where it was our first back to, for me, back to in-person classes. And I mean, I think it, it definitely, you know, it changed the direction because I knew when I got to Utica College, I was going to go to grad school. I knew that wasn't my only degree. Um, but I didn't know where I wanted to. During COVID, I kind of just like was like, what's going to happen? You know, no. like where what's what's going on? Where am I going to go? So I definitely think it you positively impacted that decision for me as well. Well, thank you. And, you know, one of the, the biggest things, I mean, I love teaching. You know, I love being around students and I, I love teaching and sharing what I've learned over the years. But for me, the biggest reward is when, you know, a student will come back and tell me, you know, you positively impacted my life. You were a great influence. And I think our influence goes beyond the classroom. Um, we need to, and it does. I mean, you know, teaching isn't a nine to five job. At least, you know, at least for me, it isn't. And right. I always make it, a, you know, I think it's important. If we're going to cultivate relationships, good, positive peers, student, professor relationships, we need to show that we're available and accessible and willing to help. Um, and I think that history has a lot to say with how a student will also function in the classroom. If they've had a previous negative experience in any type of a setting where uh, a, a professor was inaccessible or refused to answer questions, that history is going to follow them. And I can speak till I'm blue in the face and say, ask me questions, I'm fine with it. And they may not because they don't trust it because of the trauma they experienced you know, because of, of, a, of, a, of a past relationship with, with a professor or with a teacher. And we bring our histories into any, any place we go. Our history yeah. impacts how we, we do any. And if we can recognize that and respect that and honor that, uh, we'd go a long way towards breaking through a lot of those barriers and hierarchies that are, that are created. So, yep. so give us one or two takeaways from your life experiences so far that can help others young and young, old, middle-aged doesn't matter that can help them in their, as they, they journey through life. Okay. Well, one would be, which I know we talked about, but being comfortable in the uncomfortable, because obviously, you know, I packed up and moved, you know, very far away from home and I just knew that's what I had to do, but of course it was uncomfortable. I mean, I'm leaving, you know, all my friends and all my family. I'm leaving that comfort of, you know, just driving two minutes to get to work and not, you know, two hours with traffic. So there was a lot of things that just shifted that, of course, I was uncomfortable about, but I knew that this was where I'm supposed to be. And I'm so comfort, like I had so much comfort in knowing that, I was going to start school and meet new friends and start this professional start of my life. So I really like leaned in on that, even though, you know, pulling away from home in the middle of July with a U-Haul and my dog was not the easiest thing to do. And of course, I was uneasy the whole way here, but I knew it's what I had to do. So I think, you know, there's always going to be, you know, something that you don't want to do. 
but it's necessary for growth. And I really did find that. Yeah, I think sometimes that the things that we don't want to want to do are the things that we need to do in order to grow. I mean, yeah. we could do the easy stuff, yeah. but it's the, it's the hard stuff. Like you said, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable that's gonna that's gonna contribute to growth more than more so than doing the easy stuff. Yeah. And I love it here. I mean, I'm very happy with the, you know, the program and being here. And I knew I would be. It was just that oh it's not about getting here and actually working. So Well, and I'm familiar with the process you went through to make a decision. It was something you did not take lightly. You took a look at everything. You took a look at what you were looking for in a program. You took you, you took a look at the campus atmosphere. You took a look at the curriculum. You took a look at the professor's qualifications to see if they aligned with your specific goals. And I know the process you went through, and it was a very arduous process. It was a very rational decision-making process. And obviously, you're where you need to be right now. Just from, as I said, you just, you know, you look great. You look look at peace. You look self-assured. You look like you have a path, a focus and a path moving forward, which I think is great. So. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm very happy. So last question. Oh boy. Thus, is that a tough one? It's not, a, it's not multiple choice, true, false, or the matching questions that I'm famous for. Okay, good. This should be a relatively easy one. If okay. anybody wants to get in touch with you, find out more about what you're doing or, you know, just connect with you to, you know, I mean, if there's any other young adults, let's say they want to connect with you to talk about, you know, the, the grad school process and the decision-making process. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, I say email me. Um, I'm very good about answering my emails. So, you know, I definitely would do that. And I'm more than happy to answer questions and help out. Perfect. And what is your email address? So it's my first and last name. It's AinsleyCousin at gmail.com. Good. That will be in the show notes when we the podcast goes live. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? I don't think so, but thank you, Dave. This was this was awesome. This is so fun. Oh, I had a blast. I always have a blast yeah. when we, we get together anyway. So Ainsley, we gotta do this again sometime. What do you think? Definitely. Perfect. I'm I'm ready for it. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode, and please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.